It's my wife. All right, if you have your Bibles uh, or if your uh, device, um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on your phones to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, we're in a brand new, well, not a brand new series. We're almost done with it now. But we're in a series called Evergreen. And, and, if, and we talked with this um, a week or so back. I don't know if this is going to come up or not. But we have, um, if you would like to follow on with the notes, if you didn't pick up notes in the back, you can go ahead and uh, download the MBC app. And it's going to have all the notes right there. And that'll be great. Um, one of the things that we identified is that for within a church our size, um, there's plenty of people that are Christmas freaks. Like you love it, your bananas for Christmas. Like you just bleed Christmas, um, and you, you you're, you're decked out. I mean, again, you're the one who's decorating your house for Christmas before the first trick or treater hits the door type of thing. And that's you. And then there's others here who are Christmas, uh, they're Christmas haters. You're like, this is the most, this is the dumbest season. It's so commercialized, so much stress. My family's bananas, all that type of stuff. And so like, I just, just fast forward to January 1st. It'd be amazing. And then there's others who are just like Christmas whatever It's like whatever, you know, it's, I could take it or leave it. It's, it's not a huge deal to me. So for, for us, um, one of the things that we wanted to do with Evergreen, the series that we're in, is say, regardless of whether you're a Christmas lover or hater or a whatever, -er, that this season could be significant. That if we could actually focus in on what it is that Jesus came to do, that we could be all about that. Uh, I need to ask Benji or one of the guys in the back if I'm doing anything wrong with my computer so that's not coming up. Because, oh, there it is. All right, sweet. It wasn't me this time. All right, so if you, need, if you need to get the notes on the app, go ahead and do so. It's all right there. Now, the reason that we're calling this series Evergreen is because there's a difference between deciduous and coniferous trees, and we all know that. Deciduous trees are like beautiful and awesome and lush and green all through the year until they're not. They're like, no, we're going to die, and they just lose their leaves, and it's a glorious death through the autumn, but then eventually you get to December, and you're just like, meh. That's what deciduous trees look like. Evergreens, on the flip side, are green ever. They're all green through the year, and that's a big deal. It's super awesome. And the reason that we're talking about that in this Christmas series is because when God chose to tell us how his love was for us, he contrasts the fact that we are the type of people that often, in our love for him, are deciduous. We're not coniferous. We're deciduous. We're in season sometimes. We're out of season other times. But he says, my love for you, my love for you is evergreen. My, my love for you is, is gonna, you're going to see that all of your sustenance and satisfaction comes from me. And that's a prophecy that Hosea is making. It's not something that they're experiencing right now. Because right now, when that book is written, they're in dark times getting darker. But we realize that the seed of all of this, and that if, whenever you see an evergreen, it has to come from a seed. And that seed in our story is Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the evergreen relationship we can have with God. God looks at us and he sees in us people that he loves, people that he's out to save. And we see in that this amazing, amazing seed of reality that we get to experience. Whenever you see an evergreen that started with the seed, and whenever you see a Christian that started with, with Christ being planted in their life. Now, the cool thing that happens with seeds is that seeds turn into trees. Seeds grow up and they sprout up. And the thing that, that when we come to Christmas time that we're celebrating is that the fact is that God had to come. In order for us to experience the evergreen love of God, the consistent love of God, God had to become man for you and for me. That, that in essence, we can kind of put it this way, that Jesus grew up from that little baby. Jesus grew up to grow in me something I could not grow without him. I, my faith is not something that I just was born into and like, pow, 
I'm, I'm a final product, um, or, or that I really worked hard at, or I, I'm super religious, and so therefore God's like, well, you're super religious. I'm going to grant you salvation. Jesus grew up to grow something in us, grew something in me, that we couldn't grow without him. And we've been in the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, and we're kind of going backwards in Matthew because we, we, we skipped over the genealogy because that's what Christians do when they read the Bible. We look at genealogies and we're like, okay, again, as we said two weeks ago, I don't know these people. And this is a long list of hard-to-pronounce names. And on top of that, I'm never going to name any of my kids any of these weirdo names. And so forget it. I'm just going to skip over it and pretend like I read it. Um, but we're going to read it today. <laughs> and the reason that we're going to read it is because of this— Whenever you have something in Scripture, it's there for a reason. And if we don't get why it's there, maybe it's because we're enough culturally removed from the first readers that we just don't pick up on it. But whenever you see a genealogy, that is like, like a resume. In the ancient world, it was like a historical account of Jesus' backstory, and it was a resume of, of, the, of what he had to offer, what he's bringing to the table. Um, whenever you have a, a genealogy, what pe- in the ancient world, it wasn't like Ancestry.com, where you're like, okay, this person has this kid who had this family, which, and they have these kids, and it goes down like a family tree. In ancient world genealogies, you could actually take people out that you didn't want to highlight, and it would still be an accurate genealogy. The reason you would do that is because, again, this was used as a resume. Think about the last time you had to put forth a resume. Think about the jobs that you didn't want to put on that resume, because they were embarrassing, or you were let go, or you had a jerk boss, and you didn't want him to say something about you if they called him for, for a reference. And so a resume needed to be impeccable. And so if your family is your resume, like that's how you're going to get hired, that would be really bad news for some of us, right? Because we go in there like, um, uh, I'm Errol McFadden, my dad's Dennis. Okay, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. You know, we would be stopped right there if our family was the only person. So in ancient genealogies, if you're putting forth your resume, you're like, listen, I'm not going to tell you my dad, but I'm going to tell you about my great-grandfather. And I'm like, oh, whoa, that guy was actually, we heard about him. All right, you're hired. Okay, so genealogies was the resume. And what you did with genealogies is you took people that you wanted to showcase. Ah, yeah, I'm related to that guy. We came over on the Mayflower, blah, blah, blah. And you left out Uncle Larry because you didn't want people to ask questions about Uncle Larry. So he's off the grid. Okay, so that's kind of how a genealogy would work in the ancient world. And as boring as it seems to some of us, this genealogy is incredibly impactful and incredibly hard to pronounce. Let's go ahead and read that together. Genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to read through this, this whole thing, okay? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his, all of his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab... Again, names we would never use. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, this is right where if anyone's streaming at home, they've turned off the computer. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijab. Abijab, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
And again, this is where you're like, seriously, we should have just stayed home. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Gealtiel. Gealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. Abihud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Elihud. Elihud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. And Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I read all of those really intense and awkward names for the purpose of recognizing that what Matthew is doing in this genealogy is incredibly important. He is disarming and dismantling every one of our excuses in those 17 verses. All of the excuses that keep us at the seed, but don't allow us to become a seed that turns to a tree, spiritually speaking, are found in those 17 verses. Those 17 verses help us understand that God's goal for us is not just to stay where we are spiritually, but to surrender to him and see growth take place. So we go from seed to seedling and start experiencing that. He dismantles all of our excuses. He shows us who God wants to grow in, what he wants to grow in us, and how he's going to pull it off. So let's go ahead and take a look at each one of these. First off, who he wants to grow. In those 17 verses, again, if you're doing a resume in the ancient world, you're leaving the embarrassing people out, the family members you don't want people to remember, and the embarrassing situations in your family's life that you don't want people to remember. You're, you're just not saying that the, I'm not related to these people, but I'm not going to tell you and put forward that I'm related to these people because you probably already know it, and I don't want you to remember it. I want you to think good of me, not bad. This is where Matthew is... It boggles my mind of what he's pulling off. Because this Matthew guy, he was one of Jesus' followers who was a tax collector. He had baggage. He had issues. And Jesus called him. And so almost like a subversive way of saying, listen, I know my, my, my people's tradition of putting forth the best and the brightest. I'm a tax collector. I'm a former tax collector. Jesus called. I'm going to tell you the whole story. I'm going to tell it to you on purpose. You want to know who was in Jesus' family line? First off, we've got gender outsiders. In an ancient timeline of uh, genealogy, most often you wouldn't put forth a female. You wouldn't put forth a woman's name. Because in that, that time frame, they didn't care. They, they didn't think that was, that was pertinent. They really viewed women as not as important as men off the grid. This, Matthew is not a 21st century progressive. He's a first century individual who's writing a genealogy and he knows what you're supposed to do when you write genealogies. Even though you couldn't have a genealogy without women, you really didn't need women for your genealogy. And so what he would do, all of a sudden we see him showing over and over again women's names. Not just that, that, that this was, there was a wife here, but they, he names them. And that's, that blows your mind. But that's exactly what Jesus did. Matthew saw it. You weren't supposed to talk to a female, and Jesus sought them out. He, he, he communicated with them when he wasn't supposed to. He communicated his love. It was amazing. And so Matthew records that, gender outsiders. But not only that, ethnic outsiders. In Jesus' genealogy, Matthew makes sure that the reader remembers that there's a Canaanite, that there's a Moabite, that there's a Hittite. There's people, there's people in this genealogy that, that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people were supposed to hate or to take out or eliminate. And all of a sudden, you have Matthew saying, oh yeah, and by the way, you remember, you remember Ruth, the Moabite? Do you remember Rahab, the Canaanite? Remember what we're supposed to do with those people? Do you remember how these people were grafted in? 
I want you to hear that before anything I'm about to tell you about what Jesus did and what he accomplished because we didn't get it, not till the end. We didn't understand what he was doing, not to the end. And that's why I started this whole genealogy, Matthew would write, I believe he would say if he was standing here before you, with the fact that Jesus is the son of David, he came from David's kingship, and he also comes from the line of Abraham. Abraham, the one who God said, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all kinds of people. All people across this world are going to be impacted through you. Gender outsiders, ethnic outsiders are in this, this lineup. And then on top of it, I mean, again, something, if you're trying to showcase someone who's super moral and righteous, you don't want to include the family members who did things that were just messed up. You got moral outsiders all the way through this thing. But, but most notably in 3, 5, and 6, in 3, he mentions Judah and Tamar and their kids. And this is the thing that, that, that is amazing because this is the type of thing you would want to leave out of the family history, but Matthew records it before he says anything else about Jesus. I don't know if you remember the whole Judah and Tamar deal, but, but Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and, and hides herself in order to have sex with Judah, her father-in-law, to get back at him and to shame him for the injustice that he brought upon her. That's messed up. Like in, in, in Jewish cultures and in, in the Old Testament perspective, that was incestuous. And Matthew's like, and we're going to talk about it. And here's the kids that came from that, that whole, that, that relationship. You get down to uh, verse, is verse um, five and six, or verse five, and you get to Rahab the prostitute. And, he, and again, he does not hide the fact of who she was. He doesn't, he, when he brings up her name, everyone knows her profession, it wasn't like you could airbrush and say, oh yeah, and there's this other woman that was from this place. He says her name. And there's one place where he doesn't even say the woman's name on purpose. Verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. And Jesse was the, the father of King David. And everyone's like, we love King David. Best king ever. And David was the father of Solomon. Yes, Solomon. That guy was so wise. Everyone loves Solomon. We've named tons of kids after Solomon because he's so amazing. And then he says this. He, Matthew could have left it at that. It would have been perfect. In fact, his critics probably said, why did you step in it after that? Why did you, you could have left that right there and it would have been perfect, but he doesn't. He says this, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And everyone like reading that, like, seriously, Matthew, why, why do you have to do this? Every single time, every party, you bring that up. You could have left that one out. Why did you have to mention, why did you mention that in Jesus's, the Messiah's genealogy? We want to impress people. This is a resume. Why would you bring that up? And on top of that, why, we have to ask the question, why, if Matthew is, has no problem mentioning all these other women's names, even the people who did really messed up, sketchy stuff, he has no problem mentioning their names, why does he not mention Bathsheba's name? Is that a slam on Bathsheba? No. That's a slam on David. He's saying, I want to tell you about Solomon, whose mother as we all remember, was Uriah's wife. And I'm not even going to mention her name because I know it's in all of your head. And I want you to think about that. I'm not hiding this. I'm surfacing it. I don't know what kind of dysfunctional family you may come from or have come from in the distant past. But Matthew is saying this. As far as it comes to God, not a single one of us can use the excuse of our background or our backdrop or the mistakes even that we've made as, well, I can't be close to God. We see in Matthew's genealogy the fact that he is saying, these are the people, this dysfunctional family was a family that led to the Messiah, the King of Kings. God did not choose a perfect family. There isn't one. 
He planted them in one that had a ton of toxic cultural issues, prostitution, adultery, and murder all over it. And all of us can sit there and glean from that what he's trying to do. Pastor Tim Keller put it this way. In Jesus Christ, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, equally accepted and loved. In the King James Bible, this chapter is filled with the begats. So-and-so begats so-and-so. Boring? No. The grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. God is not ashamed of us. We are all in his family. Cultural outsiders, ethnic outsiders, moral outsiders. The thing that that we, we have to see in this is that whatever excuses we put before God that you can't use me because I'm currently in this sin or I'm currently doing this stuff that I know is sideways or I did some stuff in the past that I can't get over. When I'm talking to someone, this is completely, as a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of people who are on the fence spiritually. And the thing that, and you probably do too. And the thing I love about it is when you're talking to someone who says, they get to a point saying, listen, I, I like the idea of God. I like the idea of Jesus. I just don't think that I could be a good Christian because of, and they tell you something. I love that moment. Because that's like, you, I, you have just admitted the reason why God shouldn't accept you. You just have said, you know what? I'm embarrassed to bring this up in front of anyone, but I'm bringing it up in front of you. And th- that's why I don't think God could accept me or use me or grow in me or, or whatever. And I'm like, that's amazing because you're so right. You're right. God shouldn't. But have you read the genealogy of Matthew? He did. He did. This is not an excuse. This is not a barrier for him. Just because ceremonial, clean people avoid being tampered and tainted by sin and and things that are bad and naughty or whatever, God came into a sinful world in Jesus. The second person of the Trinity shows up and gives us someone who comes near. We can drop that excuse. It also leads us to understand what he wants to grow. We know who he wants to grow in, all kinds of people. What is it that he wants to accomplish? And again, we see that in this genealogy. Uh, in, in the Bible, um, you're, you're, you'll see a bunch of numbers that are kind of like the best of playlists of numbers, like three and seven, even six, 12. You know, they keep on surfacing. And like, you're like, okay, these folks really love these numbers. But then all of a sudden you get to Matthew. And Matthew has this oddball breakdown of 14, 14, 14. Now again, the way ancient genealogies work is that you could, you could adjust things to say, okay, I want to I send a message with how many I'm putting in this. And Matthew arranges his as the, the resume for Jesus in 14, 14, 14. And one uh, scholar put it, looked at that and said, what we have with 14, 14, 14 is a group of six sevens. Six is a number that, that, that the, the six, both six and seven are, are both numbers that the Hebrew people would understand, the Jewish audience Matthew was writing to, because it brought him right back to creation. It, it, Jesus, uh, uh, we, we see all throughout scriptures, that when Matthew's wanting to talk about Jesus, and they bring up something like six and seven, it's going to bring him right back to creation. That God created the world in six days, and on the seventh, he rested. It was like a chance that he could just take in the, the, all the, the beauty of what it just accomplished. And the Jewish people loved that. I mean, they, they really like rallied on that because within the Mosaic law, they understood that they're supposed to work on, for six days. On the seventh day, they're supposed to experience shalom. What's shalom mean? Peace. But it's not just peace like we're not battling each other. It's like God's peace, which is deeper and more rich than that. It's, it's God's rest within our hearts and within our lives. It's, it's basically a, something that impacted every single person because what they would do is they would work six days and on the seventh day, they would relax because the work 
for as, for, as far as I'm concerned, the work for me is done. I'm done. I, I worked at my job six days. And the rest of the world, everyone worked seven days a week. It was slave labor for anyone who would work, agriculturally, whatever. But for the Hebrew people, they were set apart because God created the world six days and rested on the seventh, and so should they. And so they impacted, okay, we're going to work six days, and on the seventh, relax, the work for me is done. I can enjoy God's favor. But it wasn't just them. It was how they treated other people. If they're walking through town, they see Larry, like, working hard on his roof. Like, Larry, get down off the roof. Larry, relax. The work for you is done. Go home. Hang out with your family. Play a board game. Spend some time worshiping the Lord. Relax for you. The work is done. They, they, would, they would look at it every, I mean, like, for you and for you. This was better than Oprah. Better than Oprah giving out cars because it was, like, tax-free. And it was every single week. For you, you get a day off. And for you, you get a day off. You get rest and peace. And you get a chance to enjoy the favor of God. God. And they, they used it when they looked at the land. They would farm a field for, for six years. And then on the seventh year, they would let that, that land just take a rest. Six years of work and seventh. And then they, they added up to it even deeper in the Mosaic Law because the, on the 49th year, on the 49th year of, of, of life, they were called to do what was called a year of Jubilee, where they said, okay, in the 49th year, the seventh seven, the seventh seven, that last year, if, if people have got, if they owe a debt, that debt's been canceled in that year. If, if, if there were slaves in the land, those slaves were call, got called by God to be freed. Any debts were canceled. Slaves were free. The whole land experienced an exuberant rest and celebration. That was what God called them to do. That was shalom. Relax. For you, the work is done. So when we see a group of six sevens leading up to Jesus... What is that saying? Matthew's pointing out for us that Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. Jesus is, in fact, the ultimate rest. Jesus is the one that brings the shalom. But instead of just the simple shalom that they experienced on a weekly Shabbat-type level where the relax, the work for you is done, with Jesus, we can relax because the work has been done for us. That in him, we can finally come to a place where the slaves are set free. In him, we can honestly admit our efforts fall far short. And that we have to surrender, to trust, to relax. Because the work is done for us. Amen? So that, that's huge. Because when we get into Christmas time, it's work, 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 work. You have to impress and please family members, boyfriends, girlfriends, um, Kids, and it's all about work, work and you're, you're, you're coming to the end of the year, and so you're stressed out because of that. It's just high stress. The message of Christmas reminds us that we can relax. On the greatest thing, the thing that will transcend this season, the tra- thing that will transcend this year, we can relax because the work has been done for us in Jesus. And we can see also how he's going to pull it off. Because again, when we come back to that genealogy, we recognize that those sets of 14, again, 14 being an oddball number, one of the things that, that, especially when you would break down something in Hebrew writings to a numeric value, you see this in the Psalms and, and, and other places as well. When you're writing to a Jewish audience like Matthew would, he knows that they're going to be picking up on that breakdown, 14, 14, 14. 14 is not like a biblically popular number. What is he doing? One of the things that they often would do was um, allow that a, a reoccurring number like that to add up to something. There was a numeric value for Hebrew letters. And so like with this, this would be um, a numeric value that would add up to 14, that name right there. And that name just happens to be David. And so when Matthew is writing this and he's telling everyone about Jesus, who's the son of David, Jesus, who's, who's going to be in the lineage of the king that everyone loves, 
you hear him like a drumbeat saying, David, David, David. Jesus is the king. He is the king. He is the king. He is the one who, all since we've been, been looking forward, all throughout the Old Testament time, we've been looking forward to the fact that we were going to experience one who was the chosen one. And we didn't know if he was a military leader. We didn't know if he was going to be a great king. We didn't know if he was going to be just someone who was super perfect. We had no idea that who was going to be the chosen one was in fact going to not only be the king, but be the king of kings. That, that God keeps his promises. And this is a good time of year to remember that. Because oftentimes we forget that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And and he promised that he was going to come and he was going to bring a savior. And 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, that savior was born. And he is our king. Now, we we live in a a country where we elect people. You may have picked up on that this past year. People get really opinionated about those things. A little little stressed out. Back in the day, they didn't do that. They had a king. And a king was someone you didn't elect. A king was someone who elected you. Okay, you can be here. In scriptures, we see that the the king of kings has in fact done just that. We didn't elect him. We didn't choose him. He chose us. He elected us. And in that, we see the amazing love and sovereignty of God, the power of God, But our response cannot be, I love Jesus because he's just a great person I can call on the phone when I'm having a terrible day because I know that he'll pick up every time he doesn't have a whole lot going on. Jesus is not someone who's just a BFF that we can kind of go through life and listen to his advice and take the advice we like and ditch the ones that we don't. He is the chosen one and he is the king. He's our master. And because he's our master, because of that, we have the ability to all of a sudden see how it is that sometimes we leave our lives at seedling level, not seeing that ever push up above the surface. The reason we oftentimes, spiritually speaking, stay at seedling level is because of the fact that we are, have so much weight of the burden of our excuses on top of us, of I'm self-sufficient, I don't need God, or I'm really my only ruler. Well, that's not salvation or rescue. Rescue is saying, I am in desperate need, and I need you, and you're the only one. And that's when all of a sudden we see the surface break and the growth start to take place where seeds turn into trees. This is in my backyard right here. I had Cohen go out and take the picture because it was too cold for me. (laughs) Um, That's a little Charlie Brown Christmas tree looking thing. That is a really pathetic looking tree to be honest, but it looks so much better than it did. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, the Radcliffs gave us like just a little sapling. And um, I don't know if on Arbor Day you ever got those like little saplings. Didn't you guys get those? And you're like, I'm going to grow this and it's going to be a beautiful tree. And it died, didn't it? Every, at least with me, every time someone says, you know, it's Earth Day, here's a sapling. I'm like, I am going to kill that. I, I, I'm death to saplings. Like you give me a big tree, maybe I can make that grow. But, uh, but something that's so fragile, I, it's toast if, if it's in my hands. And so when, when the Radcliffs at our church gave us a little sapling, I'm like, you will die under my watch. And I brought it. I even, didn't even plant it in our yard. I planted it beyond our yard because I didn't want to have like the ongoing reminder of how lame I am at taking care of plants. I wanted it to die on its own, you know, in the field and in peace. And so I, I planted it just beyond our property line. And that thing just kind of like it stayed there, you know, a couple inches up. And then it just started doing this. And I'm like, okay, little tree, let's just prolong this 
tragic experience, and I propped it up, and it stayed up, and then all of a sudden it was able to stay up all by itself, and it was doing pretty good until Micah nicked it with a lawnmower, <laughs> and rabbits attacked it and tried to chew on it, and then the next year, it just basically, there was just, it was more brown than green, and I'm like, this is the end. <laughs> Children, gather around. This is a teachable moment for you. This is what happens to all of us. You know, that, you, know you want to get it, make it important and special. But that thing just started to look like it was just, it was on, you know, moments away from just being gone. And then 2016 happened. Now, 2016 for you may have been a really, really, really awesome year. Some of you had some wonderful things take place in 2016. But a lot of us at this church had a really hard 2016. Many of you lost people in 2016. Um, The situation at your work went from crazy to worse. Bad things took place in your family. 2016, you are so excited about 2017 just to have a reset button on the past year. 2016 was incredibly difficult for you. But here's the thing that I've, I've loved about 2016 in talking to so many people who had that type of year. A lot of the people I talk to who have been flatlining spiritually, they've been allowing that seed or seedling just to stay right where it's at in their life, of their faith and in God and their growth. All of a sudden, they hit some of these patches of the most difficult times, times that should have rattled their faith and shook them to the core. And all of a sudden, in those moments, they had a chance to recognize that God was in fact there for them. Emmanuel, God is with us. That Jesus was not only someone who, who just came to be with us, but he could do something, that he did do something. And all of a sudden, they were clutching onto him as their master and their savior in a time where they had no other options. And then all of a sudden, they saw all those excuses, all the burden, all the weight of all those excuses just melt. And it was in 2016 that they started to see growth. In 2016, this little thing started to get green. For the first time ever since we planted, it started to get green and started to grow. And the cool thing that I'm pumped about is that now it's like it doesn't need any fortification. It's standing. It's growing. And I bet you in 2017, it's going to get bigger as long as Micah avoids it with the lawnmower. And the thing is that that's so cool about that is this. I want you to leave this sermon with that picture in your life and ask the questions. Where is my heart with Jesus? Have I been allowing all the pain or all the excuses or all the success or all the victory and all the wonderful things in my life or all the difficult things in my life be the excuse that's kept me stagnant and still believing in God with all my heart but not letting it motivate anything beyond a belief that feels stunted and up against a wall over and over and over again. That same Matthew, a couple chapters later, records Jesus talking about the the condition of the soils and how the seed, the message about God's kingdom and what Jesus came to do, sometimes it falls on soil that just doesn't receive it. Growth doesn't happen, or growth happens really fast and then dies out. But there's some seed that takes root and begins to grow. And I want to challenge you, no matter where you see yourself right now, to let this Christmas be one where that starts to take place. Wherever you're at, you start seeing growth so that a year from now, you're looking back and saying, look, I'm, I've seen God do some amazing things because you know what? 2017 might be an epic year. It might be wonderful. And if this past year was difficult, it might be phenomenally awesome. But it just as likely could be equally or more difficult. Do you believe in a savior and a king who transcends your conditions and your circumstances so that your joy 
is built and based and rooted in him, the seed of the salvation that he affords you. Once a month, we gather around the Lord's table. We invite anyone who's, who's, a, who's put their faith in Jesus to accept this. This is for anyone in our church or any visitor in our church who's a Christian. We do this to remind ourselves of why that has taken place in our life. Why is it that it's growth? Because we remind ourselves it is not about us or what we can manufacture or do. It's what's been done. Christmas is an amazing time to celebrate that, but we want to remember that all throughout the year. So what I want to encourage you to do, there's tables in the back, tables up front. You can go on both sides of the table. I want to encourage you here in just a moment to exit your row on the left-hand side, go to the table that's closest to you, to take the cup and the bread and bring it back to your table on the right-hand side and sit and spend a few moments in reflection. I don't know why you're here today. I mean, seriously, it's cold outside. I don't know why you're here today. But could it be that you're here today because you needed to hear the message about the fact that seeds turn into trees and you want to surrender your life to the only Savior who could pull that off in your life for you right now, this Christmas? Spend some time as we take communion. And in a few moments, we'll take the bread and the cup together. Do that now. You know, we take communion because the disciples met with Jesus at what we've called the Last Supper. And it wasn't anything like da Vinci's painting. It was a Passover feast, one that they had done every year of their life up to that point. And Jesus, at this typical Passover feast, made it very clear that this was no typical Passover feast. And Matthew was there. Had a chance to observe Jesus break script when he's breaking the bread. 
And instead, he said that this is my body. The important thing about that is that Matthew later on had to reflect back as he was writing the account of Jesus' life. Reflect back to that Passover feast, that Last Supper, that First Communion for us uh, followers of Jesus. As something that, that was told about Jesus, prophesied about him. When the angel was talking to Joseph, you see this explained. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There, there's a Christmas song that says, in, uh, Glory to God in excelsis Deo. That means glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. But the thing that's amazing is that at Christmas time and at communion time, we celebrate the fact that in the midst of God's highness, the fact that he is glory to him in the highest, he became close and with us. And we take communion, we're celebrating that God is Emmanuel, God with us, but that God is still with us. And we're reminded of that when we take the bread. The fact that he gave his body a sacrifice for you and for me. Take this in remembrance of him. Matthew records that when the angel's talking to Joseph, the angel revokes a right that every father had the right to in Jewish time, which was to name your own kid, especially to name your own son. The angel says, no, we're going to give the name to you. This name is to be Jesus because he's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be the savior of his people. The cool thing that I think is amazing about the fact that the angel told Joseph, both that God is going to be Emmanuel, that Jesus is going to both be Emmanuel, God with us, and that his name was going to be Jesus, which is the Greek version of Joshua, the Lord saves, is that he's saying not only God is with us, but God is with us to save. And he's, he's here to, to bring that salvation to us, that rescue, that liberation. When we take communion, we're reminded of the fact that we need to be saved. You may have been given your life to Jesus as when you surrender your life to him and, and ask for forgiveness, that may have been many years ago. You may say that's when he began growing in you and that's when you became a Christian. But the truth is that when we take communion, we're reminded that we still need a savior. Not to forgive us from our sins. He's already done that once and for all. We still need to be rescued from ourselves day in and day out, to be brought near to him, to see our, our life through his eyes. Jesus accomplished that the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood as the wine of the new covenant, the new covenant between us and God. Our relationship is built and based on what Jesus has done for us, not what we could do for him. Take this in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the work that you do, the work that you've done. We give you thanks for the patience that you express to us, God, far beyond what we're worthy of. We give you thanks for the fact that in the midst of a world, God, where we feel you growing in us at points, we feel you drawing us near to you, maybe even right now. We know, God, that even when we have distanced ourselves from you with our actions and our life, your grip on our lives, our souls, is still secure. Lord, I pray that if we are far from you, that you pull us close, that you make us fruitful, that you make this year a year where we're flourishing in you and your name and for your glory. And we'll give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.